Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, hello. Hi. Hi. My name's Trey, and I get to talk a lot here, so... Uh, I'm the pastor, and I love being here, and uh, we're going through Matthew really forever, so be excited. Uh, we're in Matthew 4. We've been going pretty fast, but uh, I want to open up today with a question, more of maybe a thought. Um, think about a moment in your life where you maybe had to give a speech or write an article or maybe a, a paper or something where you realized upon uh, going to do it that you were extremely unqualified, or, or um, maybe not disqualified, but unqualified to do it. If you've ever had a moment like that, like I said, maybe you're not a writer, maybe you haven't been able to speak a lot, maybe you just, maybe you won an award or something, and you're like, there's no way that like, I'm qualified for this. And I was thinking about a couple of these times where in my life I have had, I've done something completely unqualified, but because of my personality, I go up there and no one would have any idea. I just walk up there, and I don't remember what I said or what happened, but everybody said, you just were, like, so confident up there. And, and I was thinking about that, and uh, before I moved to Columbus, Sarah and, my, uh, Sarah and I, we, uh, I was a youth pastor in Tucson, Arizona, way down in the southwest, and uh, I would get to speak at camps every once in a while, like youth camps with uh, middle schoolers or high schoolers. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that I started to create was like a habit that I would do. You know, you don't have a lot of time with middle scores and high scores. Their attention span is about the length of a TikTok. And so um, <laughs> you, uh, you would try to establish what speakers would call the ethos. It's like the credibility of the speaker. And, and whenever you speak at, uh, you know, a, a seminary or a college, you say all your credentials, you know, like a bunch of letters after your name and like all these different schools you went to and whatever, right? And uh, when you're a youth pastor, I would go up there and I would say, hey, there's, there's three things you need to know about me. My favorite movie is Hot Rod. Uh, I like bonsai trees. And uh, I love Taco Bell. And that was all that needed to be said in that room. And everyone was immediately won over by who I was as a person. <laughs> now, it's a little bit different uh, depending on the crowd. But I would do that. And it was true of me. Taco Bell is really, honestly, it's starting, I'm not as liking it as much. I don't know, maybe it's like tricks for kids, you know, how whenever you get older, they don't taste the same or look the same. I just, my body doesn't really respond well anymore, but, um, <laughs> which is really devastating. Um, it's a great value meal, but yeah, I just, you know, you go up to speak with these middle scorers, and they're incredibly intimidating. I don't know if you've been around a bunch of pubescent boys, but they are intimidating, and, um, you know, you think, like, you're going to make one wrong move, and they're just going to make fun of you. And for some reason, as a grown man, that's a terrifying thing. And so I would go up there and be like, get it together, Trey. Like, I almost had more nerves speaking to them than, like, adults. And I don't know why, but I, I well, I know why. But, uh, and I would go up, and I would say these few things. And, and to me, what I had realized was I, I am essentially taking their world, and I'm saying, hey, I've been there, and I'm, I know what you mean, and I want to give you something and impart wisdom in such a way that uh, I, I'm, I'm among you, I'm not away from you. And uh, Matthew 4 is that. It is that for Jesus. It is, this is one of the few stories that we see in all three of the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These three have all pulled pieces from each other, and they all are in sync, 
which means that like they have similar stories, flows, and things like that. Well, Matthew um, has this in chapter four, but but in this story, what is so fascinating about it when you look at it is this is one of the few stories where no one else was there, just Jesus. So what does that mean? If you have if you have great deductive skills and investigators in the room, it means that Jesus shared this story with his disciples. So it's clear that in the, the time the disciples are with Jesus, they're studying under him. He's their rabbi, which means you know, he would teach them and they would listen and, and they, would, they would memorize the things he would say. This was apparently incredibly important because all three of those writers remembered it. And they wrote it down and it's in the Bible. And this is actually in Matthew. Matthew's putting this as kind of the front of his uh, the story of Jesus. And so Matthew, quick little review. You're probably like, I've heard this 12 times, but I'm going to say it every week. Matthew is talking to Jewish people at the time and who are trying to figure out what Christianity is in relation to their, their past Jewish faith and culture. And some of them maybe don't believe, some of them do, but they're trying to figure out the way of life that, that looks different with Jesus. And, uh, and so Matthew is writing with this in, in mind. And so he's drawing on all these beautiful Old Testament symbolisms and drawing them into reality uh, for them, and then we read it for us. So we, there's a lot of beauty in it, um, but in this instance, in, in, in this, this gospel of Matthew, one of the things that I say almost every week and I continue to believe is that the Jesus who we know and love is a lot of times um, not the Jesus who is truly in the Bible. And that's exhilarating for some people. It is terrifying for other people. But at the end of the day, we have to face that reality. In fact, uh, to quote Augustine, uh, he said that if we believe what we like in the gospel stories and reject what we don't like, it's not the gospel we believe, but ourselves. And so Matthew is, is composing these stories, and he's putting them in such a way that it is communicating to the Jewish people. And so Matthew 4 is directly after Matthew 3, which was the uh, baptism of Jesus. We talked about John the Baptist and what his role was and how he was essentially uh, ushering in uh, a culture, a kingdom culture for Jesus. And so if you look on the screen, we are in the second part of seven. First part was the origins of Jesus, chapters one through three. Uh, the second part is, if you look, that's a little mount, mountain, which is uh, famous for Sermon on the Mount, which in a few weeks we will give uh, Jesus' biggest sermon that we will, we will dice through over the summer, which will be great. Uh, and, and so basically with Matthew, there's these five main teaching pieces in the middle here. And so we are getting to the exciting part, but Matthew 4 is this weird, awkward transition in between his origin and the ministry and the kingdom and what it looks like to be a disciple of him, which is discipleship. So it's kind of a weird spot, but it has a priority. And so this story, like I said, is, is told by Jesus to his Disciples. So we know that Jesus is in encountering this instance in his life, but that he believes it will have immense value for the people who follow him. And so when we read this, we have to realize that in mind, that Jesus is, is, is communicating this story in such a way that it's valuable to his followers. And, and I, just, I think about this. I think about this story. And I always talk about, I, know you, I probably vent to you guys a lot of times, where I always, I'm always bummed that there's so much of Jesus' life that we don't like hear about, that's not written, we don't know, we can't just guess, right? But this is a moment where, where Jesus gets to clue in a little bit of his life that he shares, and they wrote it down. And um, so it's really exciting. But, but to start off, Matthew, is, as he's talking about this story, is, is basically taking, as I've showed on the whiteboard a few weeks, on the screen, he's taking a bunch of Old Testament stories, and he's, he's basically bringing them and he's putting them right in front of your face, 
And at that time, it was the Jewish people's faces, right? They would hear it, and they'd be like, oh, I, I know where that happened. And then he's saying, here's the story that you know. Here's the same reality we're bumping into, but, it, but, it, but the, the king, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, Emmanuel, is coming, and he, his, his result, his ending will be much different. And so just as the Israelites were led into the desert for 40 years, so Jesus, too, is led into the desert, the wilderness, for 40 days. So that gets us to uh, verse 1. Let's jump in here. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Wilderness here is essentially, think like desert with some rocks and maybe, maybe small mountains. Um, it's not just like, like the Mojave Desert, just sand. Um, but but it's, it's definitely not where people live. And uh, it'd be probably outside of Jerusalem several, maybe two dozen miles. So it's out with no one, basically, out all alone. Um, and and he, he, he's led out there, it says. It doesn't, it's not like Jesus just got baptized. It says then Jesus was led by the Spirit. He, so the Spirit is guiding him. And, and that brings up the first question. The Spirit is apparently, like, can the Spirit lead us to just like, hey, you need to go take a vacation or you need to go take a break or, or whatever, right? Like there's times in our life where we feel the Spirit leading us into something and we follow, but this result seems kind of bizarre. And, and so in verse 2, or ver, end of verse 1, it says he's to be tempted by the devil. In verse 2, it says, after he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was famished. Now, what's interesting here is he, he fasted, which like no eating, um, and, and other ones would say, uh, and even... Um, for 40 days, which is a really long time. I don't know if you've ever fasted for 40 days, but your body is borderline in starvation mode. Um, typically, it goes into that around like 30 days would be when it's very dangerous. And so he's, he's enduring this for 40 days, and it says that the goal is that the devil would come and tempt him. Now, if you're reading a physical Bible, you might have an old one like that you've had since you were a little kid. Most of them will say tempted. However, the better translation is the word testing, the Greek word, if, you, if you're nerdy and you care, is uh, parazo, which, which can mean tempted, but we, we never think of temptation as a good thing. We think of temptation always as a bad, negative thing. And so the word testing is, is less about doing evil. It's more about revealing truth. And that's what's happening here. Um, and that's why in James it says that God will not tempt you. Um, you'll, just, you'll basically just give in to your desires that give birth to sin. It's because there's a difference between testing and tempting. And in this instance, you're... I'm not saying cross out your Bible, but testing is more accurate because we only have negative connotations with the word temptation. And so the this devil is out here to tempt him. And uh, it's interesting because, you know, you wonder, like, okay, who is this devil person? You picture, like, this guy with some spikes, maybe a pitchfork. He's either, like, coming from Halloween or um, some movie that you've watched. And it's none of those, I promise you. Um, it's... You could say, well, it's a serpent. You're like, yeah, probably still not. It's regardless uh, of whatever you picture, um, which has been debated for centuries. If, you've, if you're an, uh, an art nerd, you can actually follow the trajectory of what people thought the devil looked like. For a while, it was this like, weird mythical creature and then with like, wings, but he was dark. And then the, all of a sudden, it was this old creepy man who like, looked trustworthy, but then you got too close and he would deceive you. Uh, kind of like the witch in Snow White. And uh, regardless, whoever you think of as the devil... The goal here is he is evil, and we, we don't get an origin of evil in the Bible. And, and honestly, that's really hard for a lot of people. In fact, Paul was talking about how, he was talking about Job, 
and how Job just gets uh, uh, tested by the devil. The devil comes to God, and he allows him to test him. And we read that story, and we're like, wow, that's really encouraging for Job. What a faithful guy. But at the end of the day, we're like, yeah, I still wouldn't want to lose my family and all my stuff and sit around naked with boils for like several weeks. None of us would choose that. And we have a really hard time thinking, why is evil here, and why has God not done something about it? If God really is all-powerful, if he really is all-sovereign, why, why did he allow evil in the first place? That's the question we always ask ourselves. That's the late-night campfire question, right? And we all have that, we all have that question, right? And, and one of the, I don't want to call it a non-answer, but in, in this instance, and in even the Bible's take on evil and the devil, its goal, the Bible's goal its goal is not to tell us how evil started. Its goal is to tell us what God is going to do about evil. And we, we want things out of the Bible that in reality are not trying to tell you. Like, uh, and, and we have a hard time with that. That's why Job is so frustrating because most people read Job 1 through 3. They hear the story. They think, wow, what a terrible circumstance. What just terrible circumstances. And then you read this long, like, um, you know, almost like private chat of his friends and him just like complaining about God. And then all of a sudden, God shows up, and what does he do? He doesn't answer one of their questions. Not one of them. Over, th I don't know, 30, 40 chapters. I can't remember how long it is. A lot of chapters of questions. Doesn't answer one of them. What does he do? He replies with questions essentially like, Do you know who I am? Have you set the stars like I did? Did you create the earth like I do? Do you know how the water and the seasons and all these questions, right? He doesn't reply to one single statement. And, and in that reality, it shows us the trajectory of the Bible is not about evil and how it happened, but the fact that it will be defeated and that God is doing something about it. So in, in light of this story, evil is tempting God, Jesus, with us, and we have to take notice of that. So in verse 2, he's fasting, he's in the wilderness for 40 days, and, uh, and, and here's, here's a question that I always have when I read this, I don't know if you have, but what, do you, what is he doing for 40 days in the desert? I mean, think about that, like, I don't know if you've ever been backpacking, but I'm like, I'm going to take a long backpacking trip, that's like seven days, not 40 days. Can you imagine going out in the woods for 40 days? I mean, it's kind of nice if you're not worrying about food, but like, you're still surviving out in the wilderness for 40 days, and what are you doing all day? People miss the, the, the fact that if, this, if Jesus was following the Spirit's call, there's a pretty good chance that Jesus is actually spending an immense amount of quiet time with God. Like, he is going out to the wilderness not as, not as a, this bad, like, tempted, falling prey into sin. He's going into strength. He's going into, if you've ever been just overwhelmed, over busy, anxious, spending, just slowing down, spending quiet time, just, like, just engaging with the presence of the Lord— will definitely fill you up, but the problem is the physical realities won't, like, won't change. If you spend three days in prayer and worship and, fa and fasting, you will f I'm pretty sure you'll feel closer to God, but you're still going to be hungry. So Jesus is going out into the desert, um, the wilderness, and after he's baptized, he's here for 40 days, he's fasted, he's famished, but I, I would argue that he's in conversation, in prayer, and he's cultivating this spiritual rejuvenation, this, this moment. And if you don't believe me, I would encourage you to pray about fasting for several days. You will no doubt be physically tired, even mentally tired, maybe even emotionally tired, but I highly doubt you'll be spiritually tired. And so Jesus is actually, when the devil comes, whether he comes at day 40 or he comes at day 20, all we know is Jesus was hungry because in verse 3, 
the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Clearly, the devil could tell that Jesus was hungry. Now, a lot of people take this verse, uh, this, this, and they talk about bread, and then in Jesus' reply, they basically say, like, we don't need food. And I think it's honestly really silly. Like, Jesus was human. I imagine he was incredibly hungry. We watch his, his journey on the cross, and he felt all of that pain. Uh, he cried out in anguish when he's being whipped, when he's being put on a cross. It's not like he is this, like, crazy, doesn't feel pain human. Uh, and, and so he... he absolutely felt probably terrible physically. And, uh, and actually, at that point, you're prone to hallucination and other things. And, and so uh, it's, it's very easy for us to, to forget that like Jesus is a human and that the devil is, is, is picking on what he thinks is a weak person. And so the devil sees in realizing he is physically weak, therefore I will try to attack him with a physical weakness because spiritually he doesn't have a chance. And so he, he tempts him, and he says, if you are the son of God, here's what he's doing. He's basically saying, hey, like that thing that just happened a couple, of, a couple of verses ago when you got baptized, and God said, hey, I'm proud of you, son. You are my one son who I am well, uh, who I take to, in great delight. Satan's almost kind of mocking him, like, hey, if you're really the son of God, like what happened, then turn this into bread. If you really are the son of God. That's what, that's what the devil says to Adam and Eve. He says, well, did God really mean that? If, if he's really God, why would he do that? And he starts to kind of, you play these lies in your head. And so there's the first technique here, if, you want to, if you're taking notes, you want to write it down, is the tempter tries to undermine Jesus' identity through his circumstances. He's trying to undermine Jesus' identity through his circumstances. And as Paul was actually talking about, there's so many circumstances that were trying to affect his ability to follow Jesus because he saw people who are just sinful and hypocritical, like we all are, and, and uh, there's situations in our life where we no doubt want to be able to play the card that says that uh, my circumstances, even though we don't realize it, dictate what we think about Jesus and God. And in fact, tons of us come in with that. We come into that with church. We, we've, we've had a bad experience at church. We've had a bad experience with what someone believed was the the interpretation of the scripture or whatever it may be, and we created about that thing, the circumstance, instead of about who Jesus' identity and who he truly is. And, uh, and what he's doing here is he's trying to create a wedge between Jesus uh, the Son and Jesus the Father. And Jesus' whole ministry on earth is, is just about him in union with the Father. It's replicating, when he ascends to heaven, our relationship with him. It's the same union that we, we strive for. And so he's trying to undermine the loyalty of God. Uh, and, and fun fact, Jesus can turn rocks into bread, <laughs> if you're wondering. He does many similar things in the next several chapters. And so it's no doubt that he couldn't do this. Uh, but it's the fact that he, just because he has the power to satisfy physical needs by miraculous means, doesn't mean he's going to do it. But the act was not about the hunger. The act was about him being loyal to God in the midst of hard circumstances. Which is like... I mean, I could just end it here. That'll preach, right? Like, how often do you have a hard time in life and you just want to take the easy way out? You want to numb. You want to run away. You want to uh, bad mouth. You want to lie. You want to cheat. You want to steal. Like, it's one thing to be a great person on a great day. It's another thing to be a great person on a terribly hard day. And Jesus has had some hard physical days. And so when we pull from this, and what I imagine the Jews are listening to with this temptation 
is that, and, and they're dealing with this culture around the Jews and some of them saying Jesus wasn't real and, and some of them are trying to follow him and, and, and their families and their friends and everything around them, their social, like, economic, just um, area is just so embedded in this Jewish culture that, like, them following Jesus changes everything. It's absolutely their circumstances are dictating what they think about Jesus. And so this first statement is, Jesus, Jesus replies in verse 4, and he says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice how he says, does not live by bread alone, which means that, yes, we are humans, and God has given us things to flourish on earth, but that is not the only thing. This is the short version of saying, hey, the new car, the new house, the new job, the new spouse, whatever that you think will bring you happiness, ultimately will not. It's helpful in, in living on earth, maybe, but it's not truly what we need. And so he, he's, he's basically deflecting here, and he's saying, look, my circumstances do not define who the Father is to me and who I am to him. And, and Jesus has strength to say that. And for us, our circumstances do not define who Jesus is to us. And that's why it's so hard, because we, we want Jesus to be a certain way, because we want him to be present and fix the things that we want in the way we want. And as I said about the Bible, the Bible is not this little, just like, here's all, here, let me give you all the answers to all your problems. It's about what God is doing, not what you are doing. It's about what God is doing for his people, for us, and we get to see it and be a part of it. But it's, it's much more about God than it is about us. And in this, Jesus is deferring to God, saying, I'm going to trust the Father over my own desires. Fun fact, if you actually turn to the, um, we're going to flip, so if you want to put a bookmark in, or whatever in Matthew 4, we're going to go back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. We're going to be here like three times, so if you want to go to Deuteronomy, that is in the front of your Bible. Deuteronomy 8. So Jesus is basically, in each temptation here, he's going to quote Deuteronomy. So that's why we're, we're going here. Deuteronomy 8, 3, what does it say? So he humbled, he humbled you by making you hungry and then feeding you with unfamiliar manna. He did this to teach you that humankind cannot live by bread alone, but also by everything that comes from the Lord's mouth. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 8, 3 here. Deuteronomy, this was written at the time the Israelites were in the desert for 40 years, and they were provided fully upon God's provision. And like I said, they're in the, de they're in the desert for 40 years. Jesus is in the desert for 40 days, and he's going to draw all these parallels between the two stories. Like I said, Matthew is brilliant. He's letting you know the things that you know are great, but they're brought to another level with Jesus. So second test, verse 5. We'll keep moving. Verse 5, uh, we see this kind of bizarre moment. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This is um, pretty peculiar. It's, it's most likely argued that he didn't physically take him there. Um, that he didn't just like, I don't know, get a magic carpet like an Aladdin and like, let's just fly over there really quick. That it was more of this sort of dream. It was like this reality that came around, around them in, in place. It was uh, similar to the experience of some of the prophets. Zechariah and Ezekiel had similar visions, if you will. It feels like reality, but it's most likely that he did not teleport him to that, but that it was this vision and image of it. 
Um, and and he, what he's doing is, Satan is quoting the scriptures. He's quoting the Bible. Isn't that, isn't that just the worst? I don't know if you've ever had like someone who's um, actively atheist or agnostic, and they, they quote scriptures at you, and you're kind of like, yeah, that's just really not what that means. And it's hard because... <laughs> you got to know what it means. But Jesus here, he knows what he's quoting. He's actually quoting uh, Psalm 90, 91, 12. If you wanted to take a note, you could read that later. He's quoting basically uh, that same psalm. And he's saying, look, God loves you. If you throw yourself down, he will surely save you. It basically says so in the Bible. And essentially what, what the devil's doing here is he's playing a little bit of the prosperity gospel. He's basically saying, hey, like, you believe in God, like, all things are going to be good. Like, he's, he's got your back no matter what. Like, You'll never, you'll never experience hardship or pain. And, and, and he's doing this because he's trying to, um, again, create a wedge, but he's trying to prove, he's trying to make God prove his love for, for Jesus. He's trying to put God to the test, saying, let's see if God really loves you. Why don't, we, why, don't we, why don't we confirm this right now? Let's prove it. You jump down, and we'll see if God really loves you. We'll see if God, the Father, will save you and prove his love for you. And I think so many times, like, we do this. How often do we, we sit in a hard circumstance, and we, like, play this, like, test game with God. Like, God, if you just, you just do this one thing, then I'll, I'll surely believe, right? If you just do this one thing, we, we like, we, we play this almost, like, prove it. And sometimes God does something, and you're just, like, wrecked by it. Like Thomas, right? I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Jesus shows up. He says, stick your finger through my, the hole in my hand. And he does, and he says, my Lord, my God. And some, so sometimes God does do it. Sometimes he does it in ways we don't even realize. We're not looking in the right way. He works in another way that's way better, and we have a hard time seeing it, and then maybe we start to see it. But I would argue that no matter what, God is answering. He just might not be answering to the way that you'd like it. It's like, it, you know, he's not your puppy dog. He doesn't just, like, bark or speak when you say speak. He's like, really? Are we, we going to play that game? What, that's what you think of me? And, and the devil, that's what he thinks of God is, yeah, surely he'll just, he'll do, I'm sure, you, yeah, you just test him. And Jesus says, once again, it is written, you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. So flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 16, what does it say? You must not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Keep his commandments very carefully as well as the stipulations and statutes he commanded you to observe. Once again, Jesus is quoting the Israelites who had put the Lord God to the test. And, and I, it's, just, it's so fascinating that like, the devil just like, tries these schemes and you're just like, it's, it's almost like Jesus is just like, really, like, this, is, this is all you've got? I mean, and, and not only that, but Jesus is at his physically weakest moment, potentially mentally weakest moment, because he hasn't been eaten in 40 days. Uh, but, but in reality, he's spiritually just, he's a spiritual juggernaut. He's been in probably prayer and communion with God for 40 days. And so Satan's trying, he's trying, you know, he's trying his best, perverting scripture, trying to say that, hey, if you lean into God, everything will be fine. And we know that, that God has us, but he, he is not, he's not like a genie in a bottle. In fact, it's kind of disgraceful if you've watched Aladdin. Have you seen Aladdin? You know that you feel bad for how people abuse the genie in the beginning. So it's a great, uh, great movie. Reply, uh, uh, sorry, test number three, last test. Verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their grandeur. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you throw yourself to the ground 
and worship me. Now, it's, to be honest, there, there's not, like, we're not talking, like, Mount Everest here. The hills there weren't very big, so you probably couldn't see, like, the whole world. But you probably could see a very far amount and this vision. And, and Satan says, look, I will give you all these things, thinking that he has claim over the earth. And I will give you all these things if you just bow down and worship me. So here, Satan completely moves tactics because he's realizing who he's messing with here. Uh, he, instead, of, instead of trying to fracture his unity between the Father and the Son, what he does is he goes after Jesus' very own ambition. He goes after his ambition. So if, if this is a good example, like let's just say somebody really evil was trying to, trying to separate you from your, your, your spouse, and they're trying to drive a wedge, they're trying to like believe, like, is your spouse really that great for you? Are they really providing for you? Is that like really? And you're like, no, they're great. That's test one. And then the second one is basically like, like, hey, you should, you should basically put them to the test. You should see if they really love you. Why don't you send like a cryptic message and see if they can figure out that you're not doing well? And then, and, and then, and then do that. And that doesn't work either. You're like, nope, not going to do that. And then the third one is essentially them just saying, you know what? I've, I know you put your career on. I know you put your career online for your family, for your spouse. Like she got to pick her job when you guys moved, and you're just doing whatever. And I know you really. That's really not what you want to be doing. And I will give you what, what, what you want to do right now. Like, I'll give you the job that you've wanted, that you've always aspired for, that you worked hard for, that everyone else thinks you deserve. I'm going to give you that right now if you just acknowledge that I can do it. That's essentially what he's doing here. He's, he's realizing that this is not going to be broken. And this is a testament for us in marriage, that, like, there will be, the devil will try to separate our marriage, but he also will try to separate it through one person and their own ambition, their own pride, their own... All it takes is one person in a marriage to not care for the marriage to implode. And so here in this, in this relationship, he's attacking now Jesus' ambition. And Jesus, to be honest, has a very rough road ahead of him, full of crucifixion and denial and all sorts of terrible things. And so for him to say, you know what, I gotta, you want to take an easier route? Let's do it. You can be king over all this, and you can rule whatever way you want, but you don't have to suffer like God, your dad, wants you to do. You can take the easy way. It's, it's extremely tempting. And in fact, if you watch Star Wars, yes, I am bringing up Star Wars, what is, what is Anakin's test? The test is his own ambition. It's, it, yeah, you say, well, he just wanted to protect his family. But in reality, he wanted the power that could also protect his family. The dark side's lie was that if you continue down this path, you will eventually attain the power that can, you can do whatever you want and the lie was through that power, you can do the things like save your family and, and, you know, be the best and all these other things, right? Like we always think like, oh, he just wanted to save his family. No, you think if he would have had that power, he just would have saved his family. He would have done a ton of other terrible things. And, and that's our lie. That's the lie that we believe is if we just do this thing, we will get what we think we ultimately need. And what happens in Star Wars? His wife dies. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, if you didn't know that already, I'm sorry, but <laughs> sorry to spoil it. Okay. Uh, Padme dies, and, um, and everything that he'd been trying to, to help became his very own vice, and then there's three more movies that don't go well. So the, the, this is like such a, a reality for us, is that the tester, the, the tempter, the saint and the devil knows that he has major influence in the world around us. Now, he is not king. But he can definitely shake things up, and we, 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 we kind of just walk around as if spirit, the spiritual realm is not real. 
until he's right in our face and we just feel this like oppression and we're like, oh my gosh, this is real. And, and, he, and, and we think about like just the world that we live in today. I mean, millions and millions of people are dying, whether it's through a, a virus or through slavery or, uh, or there's injustices or, or honestly, one of the things I talked about a few weeks ago is that the very things you benefit from are typically on, on the slavery of someone else's back. Like that cheap thing that you get is because someone else worked for practically no wage, right? Or the really good food that you wanted was actually just, just had no concern for the stewardship of the earth. And, and so these very things that we think around us, uh, we, we, we think as though we like, if we just had power, if we just had power, if we just had power, we could do it the right way, our way, the way that we want it. And Satan saying, if you just had power, you can do it the way you want to do it. And Jesus says... What does he say? What is his response? You are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Jesus is basically saying, it is not my will, but the Father's. And and this is just so powerfully simple for us as humans. Jesus here, I think in in this temptation, I think the reason why he told this story to his disciples is because he basically was just showing them the resume for what it means to be human. Like, to, to be a perfect human is, hey, here's the, here's the way you prioritize your life. And in this third one, he just, he literally says, you are to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. This is in Deuteronomy, if you go back to Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. It says, you must revere the Lord your God, serve him, and take oaths using only his Name. You must not go after other gods, those of your surrounding people. For the Lord is your God. Jesus is once again reminding Satan of how the Israelites failed, but he would not. And, and he's just showing us how to be human, how to truly be human. The most humbling, I think, part of this is that there have been times where, where I have believed this lie that if I do certain things, I will achieve the power to do the things that I really think are important, that I really need. In fact, if you, uh, if you remember Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, in uh, Matthew 16, 13, I'm going I'm to just turn there really quick. 16, 13, Jesus asks, hey, who do, you, who do, you, who do the people say that I am, right? And, and everybody's saying, well, some say you're this, some say you're that. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, you are blessed, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Uh, And then a little bit down farther, uh, basically what what Peter does is Peter takes him aside because Jesus says, I'm going to have to die for you. Peter takes him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, God forbid, God forbid, Lord, this must not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me because you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. If you've been around me long enough, I've probably said that phrase jokingly, like, get behind me, Satan. Um, But in reality, this is, Jesus is saying the same thing. He's telling Satan, go away. I've had enough of you. The first two, sure, they were cute, but this third one, I'm done. And I, I just think about the amount of times, though, where like I have been the Peter, where I'm like, no, 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 that's not what you want to do, God. Like, surely. Like, I can see it so clearly. That person's sick. You need to heal them. That's how God works. Like, do you ever think that? Like, this is so simple. It's so easy. Why would we not want the things that everyone else would agree is a good thing? And, and I just, I picture sometimes just Jesus looking at me and being like, get behind me. 
And I just think about how many times in our lives are we just, we almost have like Jesus as a puppet. And it's like, I oh, look everyone, it's Jesus. But in reality, we're the one moving his mouth, saying the things that we want him to say and do. And in, in this instance, what's so convicting is like, I have done that. I think I have caused Jesus to say, hypothetically, to me, like, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God's, but the things of man's. And so this ultimate test that Satan ends with, his hardest attempt, his hardest try, is to try to detract him from God's plan. And Jesus', Jesus loyalty is, is, is who he is. It's rooted in self-giving love. And so Jesus' reply, Deuteronomy 6.13, you're to worship the Lord, your God, and serve only him. And then we see at the verse 11, the last verse, then the devil left him and angels came and began administering to his needs. I don't know if that was physical needs. Maybe they brought him some bread. But the angels were with him. The devil had left him. And this is Jesus' victory over evil. The beginning of Matthew is, is Matthew telling these Jewish listeners, hey, the guy who we're going to talk about, and I'm going to create this little image you're going to get to look at, this person who is truly teaching you how to be human, he already defeated evil. And we're going to show you right at the beginning what's going to be the continual reminder throughout the rest of Matthew is that God has power and dominion over evil, even though it just appears, and we don't get to talk about why, that he will have power over it. He will succeed, and there will be victory in his name. And Jesus tells us, he reminds us later to pray that every day. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, that we are to continually be reminding ourselves of our ability to be tempted in the very same ways that Jesus was as a human. So I want to invite the band up um, for our reflection time. And if you're a note taker, I just want to summarize everything into three easy points. Um, They're the only things on the slides. So uh, the first one, the first temptation is a reminder that we should not, we don't allow our circumstances to define who Jesus is to us. We don't allow our circumstances to define who Jesus is to us. The second one is that we don't play games or be fake with God. That was my, my translation. But in that, we seek to know his heart. We don't try to act like we know God more than we think we do. We don't try to act like we are God ourselves, but that we trust in him alone. And the last one is, God is all we worship. It's the same phrase that John the Baptist echoes, is less of me and more of you. I must decrease, he must increase. Less of us and man's plans and more of God and his plans. I love uh, what A.J. Swedova says in his book. He says, Christian faith is total trust, submission, and faith in Jesus reflected in a whole person pursuit to know the one being trusted. Jesus is someone who is trustworthy. He can be trusted because he shows us the most beautiful way to be human. And in that trust, not only is he saying do it, he says, I've done it. Watch and do. And, and so communion is the opportunity for us uh, as followers of Jesus, to remember that he, did the, he had the ultimate sacrifice for us because we are not able to be trusted because we are human and we fail. And this brings us back to the same place every week. It's a reminder that we cannot do it on our own, but Jesus can be trusted through his body and his blood for us. And so uh, if you don't have one, there's some in the back. You can grab one, and I just encourage you in this. We're going to play one song. Uh, they're going to give us a little bit of time to take this, but you can um, take this. We also have one or two people in the back who would love to pray for you. If you have anything going on at all, want to pray for healing or someone in your life or um, something's been going on or maybe you have something to celebrate and you just want to 
you want to give it to the Lord with someone else, we encourage you to do that in the back. Uh, and then otherwise, you can just sit and reflect, and uh, we're going to sing one more song after this. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.